we saw our name go up there on the board and, and know that we're going to have an opportunity to play. Um, I said it before, it's like a, a second lease on life. You know, we, uh, you know, a couple days ago, we we're on life support a little bit. Our season was, and now, um, you know, there's a, there's a two game season ahead of us. And so uh, there's unbelievable excitement right now. Guys were just bouncing around the facility. Uh, we had a team meeting right before that, and uh, there's a lot of excitement right now. Hello, welcome to Monday, December 5th. It's always college football. Obviously, big day yesterday as it related to the college football playoff rankings reaction. I don't know if there's a whole lot to get into. A lot of people up in arms will explain why. We'll talk you off the ledge and we'll break it down exactly why they did what they did. It's not that difficult to wrap your head around, but either way, I think we need to make sure that people understand the actual process that the committee goes through and able to kind of figure out who goes where when it comes to these college football playoff rankings. Very, very difficult. I for sure don't want anything to do with being a part of the committee. <laughs> All right. I'm here. Mark Kubiak's here. Jack Foster's here. And we appreciate you being with us from wherever you're getting the show from, whether that's ESPN YouTube channel, or if you're here with us via the podcast, please like, rate, and subscribe. It helps us out and helps the show out. And tell your friends to, if you have any reaction, anything we say, hit us up on social media at alwayscfb, whether that's Instagram or on Twitter. We'll be there. We're going to try to be a little more interactive, especially as we head into the offseason. Try to be a little more interactive and make sure if you have questions, send them there. We'll put them in our mailbag and we'll answer them in a future episode. But let's not waste any time. Let's get to the playoff and tell you exactly how it went for the College Football Playoff Committee. Lions, Tigers, and tailgates. Oh, my. The college football season is always a great time of year. Besides the jerseys, the face paint, and the foam fingers, there's the food. And nothing gets you more fired up for game day than Eckrich smoked sausage. They're naturally hardwood smoked and have the perfect blend of spices. From buffalo sausage dip, sausage chili mac and cheese, Eckrich smoked sausage is a quick way to bring flavor to all your tailgate meals. Visit Eckrich.com for easy, one-of-a-kind sausage recipes. Eckrich, you do you. Every college football season, Goodyear knows the importance of winning on the road. The road will always demand confidence, the confidence to handle whatever the journey brings and to perform under tough conditions. And just like the players and the fans of college football, Goodyear is ready. Are you ready for the road? Visit Goodyear.com to find the right Goodyear tires for whatever road you're on this season. Goodyear, more driven. All right, let's start with some Saturday action, and we're actually going to go in reverse order here. We're going to start with the games that weren't as closely contested and work our way into the dramatic finishes. Does that work? So let's start with Michigan and Purdue. It did, I guess, to a certain extent, it started a little bit dramatic, right? I mean, the first half for Michigan, not their best performance offensively or defensively for the most part. You look at it really across the board. It's not that they were sloppy. It's not that they were lackadaisical. It's just they lacked a certain urgency and credit to Purdue. There were some things that they did within the game that made it a little bit difficult. I'll tell you this. I was a little bit more surprised with how Purdue was able to kind of commit to the run. I mean, this is a team that is remarkably one-dimensional. This is a team that doesn't want to run the football. They want to try to create as many advantageous situations as they can for the perimeter players, Charlie Jones in particular. So they're really not a team that's going to major in trying to create balance. It's not who they are, but there were some opportunities, I thought, that 
they kind of got a decent surge. They got a decent run, even though it wasn't the home run hitting type of run that you'd like to try to create against a Michigan defense. They did keep some semblance of balance. If you look at it, though, really it started in the third quarter. That's when things started to go a little bit sideways. Therefore, the Purdue Boilermakers, Michigan outscored Purdue 29 to 9 in the second half. That plus 206 in the second half this season, that's the best by any team entering bowl season since 2013 Florida State. Think about that. Plus 206 in the second half of football games. That's pretty remarkable. And you think about that 2013 Florida State team, what happened? What they do? They went on to win the national championship. Of course, it was not pretty there in the first half. And I think there's a couple things to take away here. I'm not going to be negative, Nancy. That's not going to be who I am. Michigan won the game. Doesn't need to necessarily draw a picture on the scorecard. They won the game. They should feel good about it, especially to backing up a performance like they had last week against Ohio State. Emotionally, even though a championship is on the line, even though they're playing for a trophy and a ring, it's hard to rev your engine again. It is. I don't care what anybody says. The emotional toll that the Ohio State game likely had on Michigan, I think did have somewhat of an effect on them, at least early in the game. But a few things that they got figured out at halftime. One, Donovan Edwards continues to shine, just continues to shine. You think about 216 yards last week against Ohio State. Fast forward this week, 185. That is a 400 in case you're adding it up. That's 401 to be exact. Rushing yards in the last two weeks, that's the most in a two-game span by a Michigan player since Shoelace Denard Robinson did it back in 2010. So it's pretty amazing what we've seen now from him in each of the last two weeks. Think of the run game. You know, they're really going to miss a step. They're really going to miss Blake Corum. Well, he has been up to the task at least through the first, gosh, two games as the exclusive featured back the last couple of weeks. So he's been awesome, just awesome. I thought J.J. played great as well. Made a couple of throws that, man, it was like that touchdown, especially there in the back middle of the end zone, recognizing how quickly his receiver won, driving it into a tight window. This guy's got a chance. And I know that a lot of people, as we head into the playoff season, and we have plenty of time to break down playoff matchups and stuff like that, J.J. McCarthy makes Michigan different. Now, remember, he's still a young player. He hasn't started that many football games. He might be a better player 15 practices from now than he is right now. So do not discount the growth that could come from him. And frankly, if they're going to win a national championship, the growth that's needed from him in the next month, because he can grow. The ceiling is outrageously high with that young man. I'm very, very optimistic with what I've seen. Now to the negatives for Michigan. Defensively, got to play better. All right, have to play better. They really had no answer. And, and to be honest with you, it's, it's a credit to Jeff Brom and his staff. It's a credit to Purdue. But everybody knows when Purdue takes the field, they're going to try to target Charlie Jones. Like, it's, it's going to Charlie Jones. We, we're going to move him around. We're going to feature him. We're going to create matchups for him. We're going to try to make sure that he gets as many looks and targets as humanly possible because he's their best offensive weapon. Well, he goes for 13, 162. All right, so they're going to have to, and they're going to face some guys that will be featured similarly to Charlie Jones in the playoff. They're going to need to figure out ways to neutralize that guy. Because if you know, hey, that guy's going to get the ball and you still can't stop him, that's a little bit problematic. Now, for the positives on the defensive side, 
Very encouraged by what I saw from Will Johnson. He, of course, had a couple interceptions, played really well in the contest, and that was extensive playing time on a high, significant platform. We all know his pedigree. We know he's a blue-chip guy, so maybe him, not all that dissimilar to JJ, 15 practices from now, maybe he'll be a different dude as well. It was a good win for Michigan. Congrats on winning the Big Ten yet again. Obviously, back-to-back Big Ten championships for Michigan, the first time they've done that in a really, really, really long time, 30 years. So credit to the Michigan Wolverines, just a phenomenal performance and something they should feel, well, phenomenal is a bit rich, just a solid performance nonetheless, and something that they can kind of build off of heading into the postseason. All right, let's go next to another decided victory. That was the Georgia Bulldogs. They took care of business against the LSU Tigers, and it really wasn't crazy competitive. You look at the first half of that football game, it was a lot to a little. Of course, they had the, I guess, blocked field goal return to the house. That was a wild play. There were a couple circumstances where it felt like maybe LSU can do a couple things against Georgia's defense, but that was a little bit squandered there, and they just couldn't find enough consistency with their own defense to be able to keep Georgia off the field. Therefore, Georgia goes on, scores 50 points. Stetson Bennett Maybe one of the best performances he's had this season. Thought that there might be some opportunities for LSU to neutralize his scrambling ability. LSU's really athletic on the second level. Thought that if they spied Stetson Bennett, there might be chances for them to kind of disrupt the rhythm of the passing attack. Well, they didn't necessarily do that. Stetson Bennett, especially on throws that traveled more than 10 yards downfield, was really accurate. He was 10 of 12 on throws that traveled 10 or more yards downfield. That's the most completions in a game in his career. Okay, You also look at where he was as far as attacking the middle of the field as well, an area where I do think LSU is a little bit vulnerable. A middle of the field on throws that traveled between the hashes, he was 10 of 10 for 137 and three touchdowns. And when targeting those tight ends, obviously we know Brock Bowers, we know Washington, those guys are complete game changers. He was seven to seven for 95 and two touchdowns targeting tight ends. So those are the three things that they're going to need to continue to grow on. Targeting tight ends, attacking the middle of the field, and tacking down the field. Because if you have a run game that can marry up to the passing game, play action is your friend. And Stetson Bennett, I thought, did a really nice job throughout the course of this game. Meanwhile, LSU, not a great performance by any stretch. Jaden Daniels gets hurt. In comes Nussmeyer. I thought Nussmeyer gave him a bit of a shot in the arm. And I thought he played pretty well uh, under the circumstances. I mean, threw for nearly 300 coming off the bench. That's the most passing yards in a game by an SEC player who came off the bench since Arkansas's Tyler Wilson did so back in 2010 against Auburn. He threw for 332. So that was one of the best backup quarterback performances we've seen in the SEC in nearly 12 years. So very impressive performance from him. I thought he gave him a chance. Uh, as you can tell with Nussmeyer, man, he'll go out there and he'll sling it. He doesn't care. The guy has no fear, plays with no fear, will throw it into traffic, but it doesn't matter. He made some plays, but ultimately it just wasn't enough. Georgia is the better team. Georgia demonstrated that throughout the course of the game. And I do think that Georgia, there's areas where they can grow, and we'll document that over the next couple weeks. But, man, that team is playing extremely good football, especially offensively. Defensively, I'd like to see them iron a couple things out, but we can hit that here down the road. 
All right, moving on to the ACC championship. Not a game involving playoff contenders, but a game involving the potential Orange Bowl berth from the ACC. So still a significant prize out there for the victors of the ACC championship game. And I think all of us, the main takeaway when it comes to Clemson against North Carolina, one, we know we know Clemson's good on defense. All right, They showed us that again on Saturday night. We saw them disrupt Drake May. We saw them get after Drake May. He had a difficult time identifying defenders as they were dropping in areas. I mean, he struggled, relatively speaking. Great player, great, great player, but relatively speaking was not by any stretch his performance. All right, we knew that. The other thing we knew is that Clemson had issues at quarterback. All right, we knew that the issues at quarterback were a real thing, and it was painfully obvious from week one all the way through week 12. Now, we saw Cade Klubnick come off the bench against Georgia Tech, and we said on this platform, said, man, DJ's got to play a whole heck of a lot better because that kid behind him provided a spark, more so than anything that we saw from DJ there in the first game of the season. Okay, Now, we were also operating at that time as a prisoner of the moment. It's easy to like the new toy. All right. When everyone gets their new toys on Christmas coming up in a couple of weeks or, you know, you get a, a present. Well, what are you going to what are you going to play with first? You're going to play with the new toy or you're going to go back and play with the toys that you've had for years. Okay, you're going to play with the new toy, even for us as adults, I might add. Like when I get a new shirt for Christmas, guess what? First opportunity to wear that new shirt, I'm wearing it. All right. If I get new slippers for Christmas, guess what? That night, I'm wearing the new slippers. I'm not putting my old stuff on, okay? So even us as adults fall victim to the new toy, the new shirt, the new shoes, the newness of something. So it was easy for us after week one to fall victim to, well, Cade Klubnick is clearly the guy for Clemson. And I think we resisted the urge for, to call for a quarterback change over the course of the last however many weeks, however many months. We've resisted that urge. And honestly, there were times this year where it looked like DJ Uyunglele was a completely different dude. Look at the performance he had against Wake Forest. That's probably the best example. The guy played great against Wake Forest in leading his team to a victory. There were also moments throughout the course of the season where he played really well. And honestly earned the right to start the following week. But based on what we saw in week one, based on what we saw at times when Cade Klubnick came off the bench, and I'm not including the Syracuse game, right? A lot of people point to the Syracuse game and say that was the instance in which we knew that Cade Klubnick was our guy. I'm going to not go that far because I watched the Syracuse game just like y'all, and I watched it with a little bit more of a critical eye, and I saw Cade Klubnick do some nice things. But the best thing that Cade Klubnick did that day was not turn the ball over and basically stay within the offense and take a back seat and don't get, get in the way. That, that was ultimately what he did. Did have a timely scramble to the right, but it was going to be dropped short if not for a late hit. Did have some timely quarterback scrambles. Did invigorate some energy into both the offensive and the defensive front sevens. Like they've definitely felt his presence, but I didn't think it was enough at that time to warrant making a change as who's starting at quarterback for Clemson. 
Well, as things started to progress and you kind of get towards the end of the season and the last month of the season, you watch DJ Uyunglele, man. It was as if after the Clemson game against Syracuse, it was as if he never really regained his confidence at that point. He didn't really finish the throw. I don't know if he was banged up or if he had something that was nagging him or what, but he didn't operate with the same command that he did earlier in the year, really after the first month of the season. So it felt kind of obvious that it was time to maybe give someone else a look. Well, it took them a couple series or a series or two or whatnot against North Carolina for them to finally say, all right, enough is enough. Well, Cade Klubnick went in, and unlike the Syracuse game and unlike other opportunities that he's had this year, he left no doubt who the best man for the job is going to be moving forward. He goes in and he completes what was what? A downfield throw to the left that was as high and as deep and as accurate as anything we've seen from DJ Uyunglele all season. All right. And he took that performance and that throw and continued to build on that. And a lot of what Clemson's done now offensively, yes, they're going to take their shots downfield, but it's as much about accuracy on the underneath throws because the underneath throws catch and run situations, get it to the guys in space and let them work with it. That opens things up in the back end. Well, he was 15 of 15 on throws that were five yards or less from the line of scrimmage. He was 20 of 24 overall on throws at any point in the season. 83% completion rate is an ACC championship game record. That's with a minimum of 20 attempts. So I thought he played phenomenally well. And think about this with Clemson. Clemson has had a pretty good run of starting quarterbacks, No. I mean, dating back to Deshaun Watson, Trevor Lawrence, shoot, even Taj Boyd was a pretty good player, right? Well, when you go 15 of 15 on throws that are five yards or fewer downfield, it's pretty impressive. That was actually the most completions without an incompletion by a Clemson quarterback in the last 15 seasons. So think about all the great ones that have come through it. Look, those are throws you should complete 100% of. All right. <laughs> Underneath throws should be automatic. They should be extended handoffs, but still, still got to do it. And 15 to 15 is the best performance by a Clemson quarterback on throws like that in 15 years. So pretty impressive stuff. He is now going to get the start in the Orange Bowl, and he should, because Clemson next year is obviously going to come back with the same expectations that they have every season, not just win the Atlantic, not just win the ACC, but potentially get to the college football playoff and potentially chase Dabo Sweeney's third national championship. So it was good that they finally made a move, but a lot of us are probably looking at this and saying, what took so long? All right, moving on to some games that happened a little earlier in the day, and this, of course, was somewhat dramatic. How about Kansas State and TCU? We thought it was going to be a phenomenal game. We knew it was going to be great. Kansas State comes in red hot, having played really well in the final month of the season. TCU, having come in with 12 and 0 with a great unblemished resume have had some close calls but have a lot to certainly be proud of with what they've accomplished up to this point couple things that really stood out and of course we will always talk about you know the playoff and how it impacts the playoff and all that other stuff you guys know that, that that's a big part of the discussion but let's just exclusively discuss this specific game and just let's just operate in a silo of the game for a moment all right here's the issues with TCU one, they couldn't really get Kendry Miller going 
the way they have over the course of the first 12 games of the year. Like he, he was stopped and, and we're going to talk, you know, so much about TCU in the weeks to come, but in a goal to go, gotta have it situation for Kendry Miller to get stopped, not once, but twice is a significant issue. Now, you guys have probably heard me talk about this. I talked about it as it related to Ohio State. I've talked about it as it related to several teams this year. If you can't pick up short yardage situations and or goal line situations, that's a significant issue. All right? It's something that needs a lot of reps, and it's an identifier of how tough are you, how physical are you, can your team you know, overcome the will and do not be denied and all these other things. Right? Like I've always thought that those are some really important character-building downs. And for them not to be able to get it done with the season potentially on the line at that point was a significant issue. And then you look at where Kendry Miller was this year. And credit to Kansas State. Kansas State did a phenomenal job with him. Kendry Miller has made a living all season long in making yards after contact. I mean, first contact doesn't matter. The guy is going to be able to create on his own. 31 yards after contact throughout the course of the game on Saturday. That's an indicator of great tackling by Kansas State, but also it's an indicator in them not being able to create a lot of holes and a lot of separation up front. And when you look at Kendry Miller, man, I mean, he was getting met at or around the line of scrimmage fairly regularly, more so than he has really at any point this season. And it's going to be hard to run the football, I might add, against the likes of, you know, these playoff teams. So I think it's going to be very important for TCU, not necessarily to go back to the drawing board, but they got to figure out more creative ways to get Kendry Miller in space. And then when Kendry Miller gets a one-on-one, he's got to be able to make guys miss. 31 yards after contact, that's the third fewest of the season. I think what one more thing as we talk about the goal line stand, if you will, in overtime. Max Duggan, why, why was he not considered there as, as a potential option in a short-yarded situation? I mean, the guy up until that point... Max Duggan had 100 yards on six carries in the fourth quarter and overtime prior to the final couple play calls. So something that I think they need to identify and, man, hey, on the goal line, shoot, I trust my quarterback. Like, give me the quarterback who's overcome so much to get to this point. Not that Max Duggan's a power runner, but I think in a gotta-have-it situation, he might be the guy I'd lean on in a goal line situation in the future. Hey, it's easy to look and pick at plays and specific examples of why a team did this and why it's easy on Monday morning quarterback to say, well, that was the wrong play call. Yeah, of course. right? But I do think moving forward, it would be advantageous for Sonny Dykes and that offense to maybe consider more quarterback run game as they get down and around the goal line. Perhaps what was more concerning though about TCU was their rush defense. That was probably, if there's one thing I'm going to take away from, and look, it's so easy, by the way, to look at all these teams that we've already discussed throughout the show and tell you that was great, that was great, that was great, that was great. But we're talking about teams that either won their conference championship and or have hopes of now attaining a national championship. Like, here's where they need to improve. Here's what they need to tweak as they move forward. TCU really needs to shore up what they're doing defensively against the run. And look, we know that Kansas State has a really good run scheme. We know Kansas State has really solid quarterback play with Will Howard to have solid wide receivers. But we also all know that the best option and the best piece for Kansas State is going to be Deuce Vaughn. And Deuce Vaughn was able to get his way far too often 
against TCU. Kansas State finished the game with 205 rushing yards. It's the second most by any team against TCU in a game this year. Baylor, by the way, had the most. They had 232. We all know what that game came down to, a last-second field goal. And if you look at just how Kansas State got their yards, we talked about Kendry Miller, yards after contact, all this other stuff. You realize that Kansas State had 100 out of their 205 rushing yards. 159 of their rushing yards came before contact. That's an issue. That's a major issue for TCU as they get ready for the postseason run. Okay, so they're going to have to do a whole heck of a lot better at the line of scrimmage and on the perimeter fitting the run. Because if you give backs wide open space and you give backs a lot of room, they're going to make you miss. TCU had been a pretty good tackling team up to this point, but they did not do a great job fitting the run on Saturday. And ultimately, that was the difference maker in the game. So TCU, disappointing performance, but still so much to be proud of up to this point and so much still to play for here as the season will wind down here in the coming weeks. We all know breakfast is an important part of your day, but sometimes when you're traveling for business, you end up staying at a hotel that doesn't offer any. You know what happens? You grab a cup of coffee and skip the meal entirely. We've all been there. But if you book a room at La Quinta by Wyndham, you can enjoy their free bright side breakfast featuring delicious baked goods, fruit, eggs, yogurt, and waffles. And really, who doesn't want to start their day with a fresh, hot waffle? Tonight, La Quinta, tomorrow you shine. Book direct at LQ.com. Ten seconds on the clock. How many things can you name that are always growing? Your relationships. Your skills. Your customer base. How about businesses on Shopify? Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash network, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash network now to grow your business. No matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash network. All right, so if you've been living under a rock at any point in the last couple hours, here's how the committee had them. We're going to do what we always do, and we're going to go through the... Right now, we don't have every single team and every single number just yet, but we're going to get there, and at some point here in the next day or so, we'll break down the top 25 in its entirety. But today is about the playoff. I'll start by saying this. The committee got it right. The committee got it right. Now, you might disagree. You might see it differently. You might feel strongly about your school and think that your school had a better argument than fill-in-the-blank university when it comes to maybe being in the college football playoff. Fair enough. But the committee, when looking at everything, got it right. Let's start by identifying one key fact as it relates to the rankings every single year. People get very hung up on the vernacular that's used as it relates to the playoff. Understandably. Why? Because the college football playoff provides us with this criteria. We want the four best teams. And people loosely interpret that to whatever it is they want to interpret it as. 
So for instance, if your team maybe doesn't have a great resume, but they have great personnel, you're going to say, well, we're one of the four best. Well, if your team doesn't have great personnel, but maybe you have a great resume, you're going to say, well, we're one of the four best, right? It's a way to create and generate conversation. I'm sure that as they were going through the process of creating the original college football playoff, they had some type of group that made suggestions to them in an effort to create conversation, in an effort to create buzz. I'm sure some group recommended to them, hey, man, I'd leave it really open-ended. Make it the four best and let people interpret it as they will. Well, that's exactly what we have right now. So the four best, while yes, it can probably be translated and tried to understand it in several different ways, but you know what the four best really means? Y'all, it means the four most deserving. You're going to say, whoa, 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 hang on a second. No, 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 no. Yes, if you go back over the course of time, they have always taken the four most deserving teams. Always. The best example, if you want to go back a little bit, is probably in 2015. Now, y'all might not be able to remember this, but I remember it vividly because I remember sitting there thinking, well, if it's really about the four best, this team right here needs to be taken into consideration because I think right now, based on how they're playing, based on how they played in the final month of the season, based on their personnel, all those boxes that need to be checked, this team checked those boxes, and yet they were not even within striking distance of the college football playoff top four. That team was 2015 Ohio State. Now, if you really go back and look at it, at the very worst, at the very worst, that 2015 Ohio State team, based on paper, on personnel, on ceiling, they were at worst the third best team in America. And yet, come college football playoff selection day, they were nowhere near the top four. Why? Because they didn't deserve to be anywhere near the top four. It has always been about the most deserving teams. And the best way to help summarize or to help explain, hey, this team is more deserving than this team and there's more than they're deserving than this team is win-loss record. Why? Because it's right there in front of you. It's binary. Every single game has a binary result. You either win or you lose. There's only two options. It's one or the other. Now, some losses are worse than others. Margins are significant. But win or lose in a binary result, it's easy to quantify when measuring teams against each other. That's why there have been examples of teams with two losses that have sat in front of teams with one loss when the final rankings are released. However, when it comes to the actual playoff itself, we have never seen a two-loss team chosen over a one-loss team. Thought that there might be a possibility this year just because of how things went with Ohio State and how Alabama lost two close games. But ultimately, the committee said, this team slipped up once, this team slipped up twice, one is fewer than two, which ultimately led the committee to putting Ohio State on the four line. I don't have a problem with it. I think Ohio State does have flaws, but I also think Bama has flaws. I also think Tennessee has flaws. I also think 
that any team that lost more than once, more often than not, has flaws. People have been very hung up on, well, what would Tennessee and or Alabama, what would Vegas have them as, as it relates to the other four teams? Well, until Vegas has people on the committee, that argument to me doesn't hold water. TCU deserves it. Michigan deserves it. And of course, Georgia deserves it. Those three teams, no questions asked whatsoever. They're in. No debate, no denying. They deserve to be the top three teams in that order. Georgia one, Michigan two, TCU three. People are going to say, well, TCU three, how? How can you justify that? Well, in a weird roundabout way, you're going to think, Greg, you're crazy here. You're grasping at straws. No, I'm not. I'm just trying to see the forest through the trees. In a weird roundabout way, think about this, and you have to follow me for a second. TCU's best win got better because of their loss on Saturday afternoon. TCU's best win going into conference championship Saturday was against number 10 Kansas State. Well, they lost to Kansas State. That's ultimately, I mean, that's a, that's a ding in the armor, right? Like that, that is a problem, right? It's a bad, bad thing to have a loss on your resume. But if it's your only loss, it can be forgiven, especially if you have a really good win to kind of neutralize that loss. Well, TCU's loss actually made their best win better. Wherever Kansas State ends up, that ultimately strengthens in some ways TCU's resume, which is exactly why TCU stayed at three and should stay at three. Because TCU, even though they lost, their best win also got moved up, should cancel each other out. TCU should stay with the status quo of what we got the previous week. And then at number four, Ohio State. I understand that they lost to Michigan. I understand that it got sideways. I understand that it was on their home field. But ultimately, I look at Ohio State, and Ohio State did beat everyone else on their schedule, with the exception of Michigan, by double digits. Now, some of those games were close. The Northwestern game was ugly. The Maryland game was ugly. There were times in which they didn't play their best football, but ultimately they won every game, with the exception of the Michigan game, by double digits. And their best win was against Penn State at their place, a team that is clearly very well respected and should be by the committee, a team that will make a trip to the Rose Bowl a few weeks from now. So Ohio State, while they have a worse loss as far as total points are concerned, and yes, it was ugly optics, I might add as well, they still have an excellent win in Penn State. Here's the problem with both Bama and Tennessee's resume when trying to acknowledge their candidacy in the playoff. Bama's best win, and this is not their fault. Bama's not in control of what teams do when they play after they play Bama. If Texas would have gone on and won almost all of their games, maybe find their way to the Big 12 championship, they almost did, maybe win the Big 12 championship, that would have gone a long way in benefiting Alabama's resume. But ultimately, Texas went eight and four. That is Alabama's best win. Alabama's second best win was against the likes of Ole Miss. 
And Ole Mix played really poorly down the stretch. At the time in which Alabama beat them, it was a really good win. But then Ole Miss lost to both Arkansas and against Mississippi State, and they stumbled their way to the finish line and route to an 8-4 and four season. Mississippi State in the top 25, good win for Alabama, convincing win for Alabama, but still a team that's barely in the top 25. It's not Bama's fault that no one else held up their end of the bargain, but against the best teams on their schedule, a la LSU and against Tennessee, they came up just a little bit short. Now, I think the best argument to be made right now might be for Tennessee fans who finished sixth will get a trip to the Orange Bowl, and what a great destination. You get a chance to play against Clemson. I couldn't be more excited for Tennessee fans. It's a great, great opportunity to put a bow on what's been a phenomenal season. But if I'm Tennessee fans, I'm a little ticked off because I sit and I see the six next to my name. I see Bama with a five next to my name, next to their name, and Tennessee beat Bama. So if there's a gripe in this whole conversation, it might be coming from Tennessee fans because they probably feel, and understandably so, that they should be ahead of Alabama. Ultimately, still both going to New Year's Six Bowl games, still both going to great destinations, still both have a chance to finish their season on an insanely positive note, still both have a chance to play against a top 10 team in the postseason, Bama against Kansas State, obviously Tennessee against Clemson. Either way, I know we're splitting hairs, but if I were Tennessee, I'd feel a little bit upset with how things went at the very end. But ultimately, the committee got it right. And they got it right because at their core, even though the actual terminology used is four best teams, if we were really going to go off of the four best teams, what's the point in having the committee at all? Like if we're really going to go based on personnel, why do we even play the season? Because if we're going to just go off of the four best teams and the teams with the most talent and with the highest ceiling, let's just take NFL GMs, put them in the committee room, and let them select the teams that are going to compete in the college football playoff. We don't want to do that, do we? Like, ultimately, you have to earn your way in. And the way you do that is by putting together a great resume. And if you put together a great resume, you deserve to be included in the college football playoff. The four teams that are in right now have all put together very strong resumes. They deserve to be in the college football playoff. They might not be the four best in your eyes, but they are undeniably the four most deserving. So therefore, I do think the committee got it right. All right, Deion Sanders has officially found a new home. He's going to become the next head coach of the Colorado Buffaloes. And what a hire this is. Of course, it comes with massive media attention. Primetime and Deion Sanders has been front page entertainment, front page coverage, and has brought so much positivity. And I think one thing he's brought so much of, he's brought so much attention and awareness to HBCUs after he took over at Jackson State just a few years ago. So it's been a great run for Dion over the last few years while at Jackson State. But here he is now taking his chances at the Power Five. What does this mean 
for Colorado. Let's start there. Colorado has now made a very splashy hire. Now, I think we all wonder, I mean, what will Dion do now with a real platform, with a massive platform, with a loud microphone, with an opportunity to play against Power 5 teams on a week-to-week basis? I think we're all really wondering about that. But if nothing else, if you're looking at it from Colorado's perspective, now you at least, at the bare minimum, before we get into X's and O's, before we get into fit and recruiting philosophy and offensive and defensive philosophy, before we get into all that, all right, we'll get to that. But if nothing else, you now are front page news. You know, that, that to me is really beneficial. When I was growing up there in the early 2000s, I mean, Colorado was a really good football program. I mean, they broke my heart as a Texas Longhorn fan back in the early 2000s when Chris Sims you know, played awful. And I'm sitting there as a redheaded kid with freckles begging for Major Applewhite to go in the game, but it was too little too late. And Colorado actually kept Texas out of the national championship there in the early 2000s, late 90s, whatever year it was, okay? I don't want to remember it because my team came up short. Either way, Colorado, the Colorado that I grew up with was a fixture in the college football world. Now, that was a long time ago. Colorado, of course, at that point was in the Big 12, Colorado at that point had really done a good job of getting a bunch of guys from California and they recruited the state of Texas very heavily. So they had a really nice blend of West Coast and and guys from Texas. And it was just a really interesting roster. And if you go back and look at the roster back in the day, and I took the time to do that this morning, they really were able to kind of go and, and get a bunch of guys from a lot of different places. And I think that's the approach that Deion Sanders will take. Deion Sanders now has done a great job of endearing himself to recruits and prospects all over the country. He has had involvement with the Under Armour All-American game. He has definitely gone through as a parent with Shador, his son. He's gone through the recruiting process himself. He can relate to the players and he can especially relate to the parents of the players because his son will likely be following following him to Colorado in and of itself. So Colorado has captured the attention of the entire media world. And two, they've now created an opportunity for themselves to recruit nationally. So those are the two things that I think were very, very important for Colorado. They've been a wasteland, if you will, the last handful of years. They haven't had any sustained success in what appears to be like 15, 16 years. It's been a long time since Colorado was relevant. Well, now they're relevant. Okay, what does that mean as far as wins and losses are concerned? We're going to get to that in a minute. All right, here's what Dion, though, will do, I think, in the near term. I do think Dion will attack the portal. I do think Dion will be able to find a connection with players in every nook and cranny of the country because of the success he had as an NFL player. Now, one thing Dion hasn't done just yet because he was at Jackson State, he hasn't really established a pipeline to the NFL, but I I don't know if that matters because he himself was in the NFL, right? He himself had gone from a high school player to a college player to the NFL. So I don't that people have kind of said, well, that's that's one thing like there's no proven track record of him taking guys from high school, developing them and putting them in the league. Yeah, maybe not. But I know that 
he has an, another layer of credibility that 99% of the guys that take over at head coaching jobs don't have. So I think Dion will be able to recruit and attract guys from all over the country via the portal. Two, I think Dion, of course, will go and has already proven to be able to go and, and be a player in the NIL world. Look at how he was able to provide opportunities for his son, Shador. Look at the opportunities that he was able to provide Travis Hunter. Now, I think that NIL is going to be a huge part of the plan for Colorado. Look, they're going to have to go out and they're going to have to spend. That's, there's no denying that. Colorado's going to have to spend and the boosters and the supporters of the program are going to have to spend money on the collective. They're going to have to spend money in the NIL world. Because there's not a lot of guys that are just growing up in their backyard and thinking, man, I want to be a Colorado Buffalo. I think there are some, but there's probably not enough to put forth a perennially competitive program. So I I think that he's going to have to be a huge player in the NIL, and Dion has already proven to be able at Jackson State to do that. The other thing that I think is going to be really important for Dion, he has never at Jackson State taken the field as the less talented team. His son probably was among the best in the FCS. Travis Hunter, among the best in the FCS. A few other players that he had on his roster, among the best at their position in the FCS. Well, now when he goes to Colorado, it's really going to be as much about talent acquisition, but it's also going to have to be out-scheming the opponent. So it's going to be highly important for him to go out and try to identify quality coordinators that can neutralize the talent advantage that might exist against the likes of some of the teams they'll play in the Pac-12. If you look at Colorado's roster, it's bad, y'all. Relatively speaking, it's bad. Doesn't mean it can't get good, but will it be good enough in year one, year two, year three to really be competitive to the point in which you're competing for championships? Because ultimately, that's what Dion wants to do. If you can go and win nine games at Colorado, that is one heck of a performance as a head coach by Deion Sanders. But I think we all know that he's going to be very important and instrumental in attracting talent, high school and college talent via the portal. But now, who does he surround himself from an exo standpoint with? He needs to go out and try to get the most experienced, the best possible coordinators, both offensively and defensively so that they can find schemes that can best bring out the attributes of the players on the roster. So I think that's going to be really important. One, recruit the portal. Two, recruit the high schoolers. That goes without saying. Three, you absolutely have to get difference-making coordinators both offensively and defensively. What's reasonable for Colorado here in the near term? I think incremental growth incremental growth. We're talking about one of the worst teams in America, regardless of power five group of five affiliation. This is one of the worst teams in America. This is one of the most difficult jobs in America. And I think it's going to be really interesting to see just how much of a difference maker Deion Sanders is on the recruiting trail, because if he can put together a good quality high school class for the 2022 signing day, which comes, gosh, 15, 16 days from now, then what does that tell you about what 2023 signing class might look like? And ultimately, what does 2024 signing class look like as well? And then how many guys from the portal will be going 
or at least taking visits to Colorado. I think all those things are very interesting, but there's no denying he inherits one of the most difficult jobs in America. And if he can get to a six-win, seven-win plateau on a regular basis, that would be one heck of an accomplishment for Dion and this Colorado program. Hey, thanks so much for being with us. What a fun and exciting day here on Always College Football. It's one of my favorite days of the year, the selection day. I know this year, maybe not as much drama as we've had in recent years, maybe not as, uh, I guess, outrageous. The reaction will be strong. There's no doubt the reaction will be strong because if your team's not in the top four, you're going to lose it, and you're going to try to poke holes in other teams' resumes. I get that, and that's the beauty of college football. But I think we all need to acknowledge and we all need to remember that it was never the four best. Okay, I'll sum it up by finishing talking about the fact that it was never, ever, at any point in the college football playoff history, has it ever been the four best. It's never been that. I know that's the term they use, but it's never been that. It's always been the four most deserving. And the four that got in this year are, whether you agree with it or disagree with it, they are the most deserving when it comes to their win-loss record, their wins, their losses, etc. So everyone's going to disagree. The good news is if you do disagree, the 12th playoff is co- 12 team playoff is coming. <laughs> it's coming really soon. So just hang in there a couple more years away from essentially guaranteeing yourself a spot based on how you finish in your respective league but that'll do it for us here at always college football please like rate and subscribe it helps us out it helps the show out we look forward to being back with you again tomorrow as we highlight some of the bigger bowl games now we're going to go through and give you a bunch of different breakdowns and stuff like that here in the weeks to come but one thing that we haven't had a chance to do today is identify some of the new year's six matchups identify some of the bigger bowl game matchups so we're going to take our chances tomorrow to do that and then here on wednesday we're going to look at a little bit of portal players so a lot still to consume here at always college football in the next 24 48 72 hours so keep it locked in here on espn's youtube channel or the podcast and like i said like rate subscribe it helps us out it helps the show out for all of us here at always college football for jack foster and mark kubiak i'm greg mcelroy we hope you have a wonderful day check back with us tomorrow and remember it's always college football Hey guys, it's Greg McElroy. Thanks for watching Always College Football. Make sure you like, rate, and subscribe to ESPN's YouTube channel and wherever you listen to your podcasts.